0: All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to study God's word as we continue to worship. So go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Trudging along in the second page of the Bible, Genesis 2, I want to welcome those of you who are guests with us this morning. It's a joy to have you here. Friends on live stream. so glad that you're joining us uh, from where you are. All right, Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to start reading where we picked up Uh, leaving off last week. So Genesis two, beginning in verse four. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellum and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So in 2004, American Airlines was in the news because the pilot of one particular flight had just gone on a missions trip and it changed his life and he became a Jesus fanatic. Everything changed in his mind and in his heart. And so there, as the plane is taking off in his opening comments, he asked all the Christians on board, over the loudspeaker, he asked all the Christians on board to raise their hand And so hands go up in various places, all the Christians are raising their hands, and then after that, he suggested that during the flight, the people who hadn't raised their hands should ask the people who had raised their hands about their faith. And you can just imagine how unsettling it would be as your plane is taking off, your pilot is telling you, you need to be prepared to meet Jesus. (laughs) And there are a certain number of passengers who had their hands raised a moment ago that can help you do that. All right, and you can, uh, there again, the unsettling sense in which what you want to say, even as a Christian, what I would want to say is, bro, you got one job, fly the plane. Like that's to God's glory, that is for our blessing, fly and land this plane, That's, that's your job, right? It's been a trendy thing in Christian circles over the years for people to say, for example, I'm paid to be a surgeon, but my passion is the gospel, which sounds great, until you need surgery. In which case, you're kind of like, you know, it would be nice if your passion was surgery. Um, can you have two passions? Is it like if you have two children, can you love them both? Is it possible, or does one always rob from the other one, right? It illustrates, I think, the tension that Christians feel about how our faith intersects with our work our everyday work, whether it's work we get paid for or work we volunteer to do or work we do in the normal week that's in front of us, right? The majority of your waking life is not spent in prayer and scripture and doing evangelism. The majority of your week is done doing normal, ordinary tasks and the question is, does any of that stuff that we do the rest of the week actually matter? Does it only matter insofar as we draw a paycheck so that we can do the real things, which is ministry and mission through our giving and so on and so forth? Or does it only matter, do we justify our existence for 40 hours of that week based on the fact that we have actively shared the gospel and evangelized all the people around us? Or does the work itself actually have meaning? Does it have significance? Does it have value for the kingdom of God? And in Genesis 1 and 2, we get the building blocks of of creation, we get the building blocks of human civilization, three fundamental institutions that God gives, the institution of Sabbath, we saw that last week, the institution of marriage and family, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, and the institution of work. Work is something God designed for us in the Garden of Eden. The Bible doesn't just tell us how to have great quiet times. it tells us that all the other things that we do in life also can be filled, imbued with significance and meaning and to the glory of God. We have a holistic philosophy in scripture that's given to us for our whole lives. I read a book last year by a New Testament scholar named Jonathan Pennington the book is called Jesus the Great Philosopher, Subtitle: Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. And in the book, one, he writes the book with a sense of joy and enchantment that is magnetic. It's like he's writing with a smile on his face. He's delighting in the goodness of God in the good world that he has made. And there's just this sense of wonder and enchantment. And he talks about how God's word gives to us a robust vision for life. Not just this category of life and this category of life, but the whole of life, the life of the mind, emotions, ethics, politics, friendship, the goodness of creation, and a life of relationship with God. The whole book just... um, it's got this, uh, this radiance underneath it, this sparkling joy underneath it, there's a sense of delight. And I hope, even as we study this text, there's a sense of delight in the goodness of God's design for work, and delight is appropriate because the Garden of Eden, Eden means delight and we're looking at the garden where God rolled out delightful thing after delightful thing, and he said it was good, and it was good, and it was very good, and then he's giving these gifts and these assignments, and they're all good, and they're all delightful, so our time should not feel onerous. It should feel delightful. If we do this right, our time looking at work should be delightful. So three phases that we'll move through this message. Number one, the story of our work the story of our work. So in Genesis chapter one, and we took some time to walk through this week after week, Moses has just laid out the story of creation, the six days of creation, the seventh day of rest. We looked at the seventh day of rest last week. And then we come over into chapter two and it feels like, okay, what's going on here? Because now there's no humans and there's no shrubs, right? So I thought we just had shrubs and I thought we just had humans. So what's going on here? Well, these, these accounts, they complement one another. Moses in chapter two, he is not flying over the whole cosmos looking at the entire macro creation. He has zoomed in on a sweet piece of real estate called the Garden of Eden and he's gone back. He's rolled back the clock and he's letting you see day six in the Garden of Eden and what happens there. So we're slowing down and he's looking at what happens on day six and one of the things that we learn is you know, when you read just chapter one, verse 27 for example, You might get the impression that when God made mankind, male and female, that he made them both simultaneously. Well, the purpose wasn't to give us a hard chronology of what happened first and what happened second. But in this text, we find out God made humans and he started with Adam and then he brought Eve alongside. So there's there's a sequence. One was created and then another was created. That's more clear here in chapter two than it was in chapter one. One of the things that's clear right here is in verse five though, we're told that why things aren't growing. Shrubs aren't growing basically in verse five of chapter two for two reasons. The Lord God had not made it rain on the land and you see it there, there was no man to work the ground. So we're in this location of the Garden of Eden And this place is not going to thrive and it's not going to grow until there are humans here to help it grow, to make it grow, to encourage and cultivate its future growth. Eve's gonna be here in just a minute because this task is way too big for Adam by himself. So he's gonna bring Eve alongside to help with the task. But the idea is very clear. It's this idea, very simply. The humans are given work to do by God. And the work that they're doing is gardening. It's garden, it's cultivating the land. Um, Gardening, however, if you keep reading through the scriptures, gardening becomes really a metaphor for all kinds of work, for every kind of work. There's a sense of uprooting, there's a sense of planting, there's a, a cultivation, there's a pruning, right? So even, even work that you don't get paid for falls under the metaphor of gardening. Work, the work of parenting in Psalm 127 and 128 is the work of gardening. So remember what we saw in Genesis chapter one. Humans are created in God's image to represent God. We saw that, right? God, he's forming and he's filling, he's ruling and he's subduing. He is, he is Lord over creation and, and that's the, the functions, forming and filling. And then he creates man and he says, form and fill, rule and subdue. Do what I just did. I laid down the pattern and then I rested and I want you to do what I just did and I want you to rest as well. They represent God. They're ruling in his behalf. Theologians often explain imago Dei. That is the, the biblical doctrine that we are created as humans in the image of God. And often theologians, at least for the past few hundred years, have unpacked that with reference to three categories or three types of work that we do. Humans are, in some sense, prophets, priests, and kings. So what's this kingly task in Genesis? As kings, we're called to subdue so that God's rule is extended. So God commissions Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with image bearers, not gonna unpack everything that we saw about that two weeks ago, but this would involve the building of cultures. The building of cities. There's a wrong way to do it. We'll see that in the Tower of Babel. But there's a right way to do it as well. Matter of fact, the Bible, if you look at it in one sense, the Bible starts in a garden and ends with a city. And everything in between is man under God. The task that's assigned is under God's lordship, build cultures, build cities. So infrastructure is going to be involved. City planning is gonna be involved, law courts and marketplaces, and eventually roads are gonna be involved and hospitals and electricity and clean water and sewage and telecommunications, right? And then you read through the Bible and what do you see? You see people making stuff. They're miniature creators in the image of God, so they're making, they're making tools, they're making instruments, they're composing choral works that are gonna be sung that are right there in the middle of your Bible. This Psalm is written for the choir to the sons of Asaph and so forth. They're writing legislation, they're writing case law, they're doing the stuff that God designed us to do. Speaking of the Psalms, in Psalm 8, it's a song that celebrates the dignity that God gives to humans and the task of ruling that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Here's what Psalm 8 says. You crowned them with glory, that is the first humans. You crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. It's a fascinating song, because it's a song that celebrates not only the glory of God, but the dignity of humans. And it it doesn't even do that in a sense of kind of narcissistic self-glory. It says, what is man? What are we that you are mindful of us, that you would make us just a little less glorious than the angels that are radiant, that shine, and you made us just a little less glorious than that. It's it's a psalm that's filled with wonder at the kindness of God, that he would give us such meaningful work, such meaningful call. So not only kings, but priests. As priests, we're called to work and watch over so that God's beauty is displayed. So the language throughout Genesis one and two is very intentional. God isn't just creating the world, he's creating a cosmic temple. And he's going to dwell in this cosmic temple with his human people, right? Just like the Old Testament. So there's lots of things that are um, firing right here, literary fireworks that Moses is using. So just like the Old Testament temple, which you'll meet later on in the law of Moses, just like the Old Testament temple faces east, the Garden of Eden faces east. So you would enter the temple from the east and when Adam and Eve are ejected from the Garden of Eden, a cherubim is put where? On the eastern edge of the Garden of Eden. You can't come back in, there's only one entrance back into the holy place of God, into the cosmic temple of God, and it's to come from the east. And there's the cherubim that's situated there guarding the entrance to the holy place of God. And very similarly, if you walked into the temple, you would come in from the east, and as you passed and you saw all the furnishings, all those furnishings were screaming Garden of Eden. They were filled with with symbol-laden language of the Garden of Eden and then you would get to the place where right at the end of the Holy of Holies and there is what? The cherubim over the throne of God. The creation was a cosmic temple and Adam and Eve were the priests. Matter of fact, Moses who writes the first five books of the Bible, he will use the same two words to describe the work of priests in the tabernacle and the work of Adam and Eve in the garden. When he gives the job description of the Levites in the book of Numbers, he says, you got two jobs, work it and watch over it. And then when he makes Adam and Eve in the cosmic temple, he says two things, work it and watch over it. They were priests. What do priests do? Priests have the responsibility to discern between what is holy and clean and unclean. Priests maintain the beauty of the temple, the furnishings of the temple, and the function of the temple. So kings and priests and third prophets, as prophets were called to speak so that God's glory is seen. So a prophet is someone who hears God and speaks on behalf of God. And what you see in the creation narrative is the moment God creates humans, it says, he blessed them and he said to them, these creatures can hear him. These creatures are are designed by God to hear him and respond to his voice. He puts Adam in the garden, right here in chapter two, verse 15, and then verse 16, he tells him a law. He instructs him with the law, So, so later on, We're supposed to see what this implies. Later on, when Eve sees the serpent roll up in the garden, right, and the serpent does what? He speaks, and when he speaks, he's twisting God's word. And in that moment, her job as a prophet, Adam's right there too, and neither one of them did it, but their job was to set the record straight. Their job was to untwist the twisted words. Even after the fall, though, Humans are still doing things that hint at our origin, at where our story began. Humans are still creating and they're ruling and they're discerning and they're separating between light and dark and they're communicating and clarifying, right? They're doing things that hint at where we began. We were kings, we were priests, we were prophets and there's a sense in which that, that origin, hardwired creation account is irrepressible. So the story of our work second, the glory of our work. And and there's chronology that's really important here. So notice, God put work into paradise. It's important. Work does not come after Genesis 3. Work does not come after the fall. God puts work into paradise, into Eden. He creates the humans, he blesses them, and he says, here's my garden, go to work. And that's a good call. That was a noble, dignified call call, rule this place, cultivate this place, make this place sing, make this garden glorious and spread the glory further and further out. You, th- you think about the kinds of, of work that humans have been doing for thousands of years now. Somebody, I don't know when this happened, but somebody figured out how to engineer the honey crisp apple. Right, I didn't know there was a Honeycrisp apple until like two years ago. So some of you have been onto this for a long time, and I was a latecomer. But it's like I ate—I took one bite of the Honeycrisp apple, and I'm like, "Where has this apple been all my life?" So, that apple wasn't in the garden. Somebody figured out a way to synthesize a couple of different things and bring out the greatest apple the world has ever known. Right? And that was that was a great day in the annals of dominion. Now why do kids? I mean, from the youngest of ages, why do they color pages for us and present them? <laughs> we've got some in our fridge. I've got some in my office from Brook Hills kids who just make stuff and create stuff and draw things. My wife works in preschool ministry every week here at Brook Hills. And this past week, we've got a picture on our refrigerator from a little girl that she often takes care of. And, and that little girl just made this page pop. She looked down at this page and it just had black and white boring stuff and she went and grabbed some crayons and there's like a yellow line that kinda of zigzags across. And then there's a blue line and it's like, no, I'm not gonna do this, I'm gonna go up and around, right? So it's just, she's just having a ball and she saw this page and she wanted to make it better than it was before. Why? It's in the blood. We've been creating since the beginning. We're made in the image of a creator, God. The the first page of the Bible and God is doing what? He's got his hands in the dirt. Where do the kids want to play? In the dirt. (laughs) It's in the blood, they're image bearers. It's the divine imprint. Every good work expresses God's creative or restorative activity in the world. All good work that we could do this week is expressing something of God's creative or restorative activity in the world. From the beginning, don't don't miss this, God has designed you and me to come alive in the context not only of worship, but of meaningful work that reflects His his image, we thrive as miniature creators, we thrive as miniature restorers. You take music for example, and what does great music do? It combines musical notes and rhythms and lyrics, words, concepts, ideas, themes sometimes in classical music where that theme will run its way all the way through and it'll be shifted in some way, maybe developed and riffed in a minor key and then it'll come back in a major key at the end. This is music, it's been created in this way. Years ago, I, I, I listened to a lecture at the Berkeley College of Music that was available online and it was about the best songs that were written in the 20th century and there was about a 20-minute excursus on the genius of the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow and he just did musical analysis of this work and how it starts with an octave jump. Some where? So you're going over the rainbow, but you begin by jumping an octave with the melody itself, and then you go from the one to the eight of the scale to the seventh of the scale, which is dissonant. Eight and seven are dissonant. They don't sound right next to each other, but the song has a haunting sense underneath it. You've got a minor key going on there. It's genius. It's genius work. Great composers, they take sounds and words and rhythms to create power and stirring moments. Image bearers. It's in the blood. It's irrepressible. We do it in all kinds of different ways. And yet in church history, sometimes there are glaring moments where we get this so wrong. We undervalue the dignified work that God has given us in the beginning. Eusebius, for example, the Bishop of Caesarea. He argued that Christ gave two ways of life to his church. One is called the perfect life and the other is called the permitted life. Here's what he says. The perfect life is spiritual, dedicated to contemplation and reserved for priests, monks, and nuns the permitted life is secular, dedicated to action, soldiering, governing, farming, trading, raising families. And he went on to say that those who follow the permitted life have, quote, a kind of secondary grade of piety. And what you want to say is, if you're the farmer, that secondary grade of piety, put food on your table. It wasn't you contemplating things that got food from the field to your table. (laughs) It was (laughs) publics And the whole process that leads to that. Perhaps the most powerful response in church history to that way of thinking, that false dichotomy would come in the writings of Martin Luther, the German reformer who wrote these words. The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they be, Do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework of a manservant or maidservant is often more acceptable to God than all the fastings and works of monk or priest because the monk or priest lacks faith. And that's what they call a mic drop and it's happened for hundreds of years, and Luther was one of the best at it of anybody in church history. He would say, he would write in another place, Luther said, God and the angels smile when a man changes a diaper. (laughs) William Tyndale said, if our desire is to please God, pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word is all one. William Perkins, said, the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as the action of a judge in giving sentence or of a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. Recovering the sacredness of all work done to the glory of God, even the everyday ordinary tasks that are before us this week. So what we're talking about here is calling And calling places this prospect before us. Find a place where your deep gladness intersects with the world's deep need. You think about the everyday work that's represented right here in this room. What you did last week mattered. It mattered. What you did this past week reflected something of the image of God. When sidewalk concrete was properly grooved, God was glorified. When vehicles that were broken were repaired and back on the road, when websites were organized around a clear message, when a meeting didn't go an hour longer than was necessary. (laughs) That's you bearing the image finding in everyday ways the intersection between your deep gladness and the world's deep need. So here's some perspective I wanna get us to think about. Through this work, that is whatever works in front of you, whether you're paid to do it or not, through this work, this task that you've been assigned, I can give a glimpse of the work God is doing. I wanna encourage you to think that way about tasks you're doing this week. Think about how your work reflects God's work. And I'll just give us a sampling. Mothers, you are an expression of the nurture of God. Artists and entrepreneurs, an expression of the creativity of God. Executives, an expression of the rule of God. Accountants and administrators, an expression of the order of God. Counselors, therapists, medical workers, an expression of the healing power of God. Educators, an expression of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Baristas, an expression of the God who wakes the dead. <laughs> I'm so thankful for our baristas, reflecting God's image all day, every day, right? Volunteer workers, an expression of the God who says it is better to give than to receive the self-giving God, hairdressers, fashion designers, an expression of the beauty of God, marketing and advertising, the persuasive God, architects and builders, the refuge and shelter of God, journalists, writers, storytellers, the God who makes every word count and saves his best word for last. I won't do all of them. Maybe you can do that in your own life. Maybe you can do that in your small group. Start rethinking the value and dignity of the work God has laid before you. What if we started thinking every good endeavor represented in this room matters? For the world, for the kingdom, what if the work of the kingdom of God leaves literally no one on the sideline? A woman named Missy Wallace who runs a, faith and work nonprofit and she used this motto, loving people, places, and things to life. It's what we do, she says. Loving people, places, and things to life. And she playfully pointed out that Jesus spent more time working as a carpenter than he did working in ministry. I think sometimes as evangelicals, we are so worried that statements like that and sermons like this are going to undermine our passion for evangelism and gospel proclamation that we'd rather just go ahead and risk people feeling that most of their life is useless, that most of their week is useless. As if ordinary work and the cultural mandate and the creation mandate and the Great Commission is a zero sum game. That one is always robbing the other one of value, that one has to win at the expense of the other. The Great Commission did not destroy the cultural mandate and vice versa. They both matter. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can uphold the value, the glorious, God-glorifying value of both. And if we don't, guess who's back? Eusebius with his, this is the perfect life, and this one's permissible. Doesn't really matter that much. This really matters, but that doesn't. So the story, the glory, and finally the future of our work. So... In Genesis chapter three, everything goes wrong, right? Adam and Eve, they sin against God, they rebel against God, and and everything falls. That event is called the fall, and since the fall, all work involves frustration. So work is part of God's good design, but when sin entered the picture, work became complicated. It's not not good, it's still good. The goodness of work breaks through Post fall, and yet the goodness of work is now infected with the frustration of work because work was cursed. Here's what scripture says in Genesis 3, 17. The ground is cursed because of you. Well, I worked in the ground. Well, the ground is cursed. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. In other words, the ground's not gonna make it easy for you anymore. It was easy before you rebelled. Now the ground's gonna make it hard. Produce thorns and thistles and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. You will work yourself to death, is the prospect. Your work in the ground will run you literally into the ground. And work can go wrong in all kinds of ways. It can go wrong through laziness. It can go wrong through finding our identity in our work. If you've ever seen the movie, Chariots of Fire, the British Olympian, Harold Abrams, he says something that I think resonates, resonates with our daily work and what our daily work can become. Our daily work can become our identity. And here's one of the things that he says about his Olympic race. He says, when the gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds to prove I belong here on planet Earth. We can do the same thing with work. Genesis predicts that work will have that effect if we're not careful of running us into the ground. So what do we need? We need last week's message on Sabbath and rest to complement this week's message on the dignity and value of work. Friends, hear this. We have meaningful things to do this week under God, but those things that we do do not earn God's love. We're saved by work but it's not your work, it's Christ's work. His finished work, he completed his redemptive work and what that does to those who are now new creations, who are now his workmanship in Christ, created for good works, is it frees us to work. We're not hounded by a sense of earning our keep, we're freed from endless effort to prove ourselves. So what the gospel does to work, I love this quote from Nancy Guthrie. She writes, on the days when you are doing the lowliest tasks, on the days when you compare yourself to everyone around you who seems to be doing far more significant things with their lives, take stock of who you really are because you are united to Christ the King. When you know you are seated with him in heavenly places, you will be able to lower yourself to do the most menial tasks and go to the most needful places to give yourself away. Friends, we have a God who loves us and announces his love for us before we go to work. Jesus, he goes into the waters of baptism, hasn't done a miracle, hasn't fed the 5,000, hasn't raised the dead, hasn't gone to the cross. All he's done is make wheelbarrows with dad and get wet in the Jordan River. And a voice comes out of heaven that says, that's my son. And with him, I am well pleased. That's our God. Don't you see, grace doesn't just change our future eternal destiny, it affects the way you wake up tomorrow, it affects your days and your nights, the way we work, the way we rest. What if your job is your mission field? Not just on the days you happen to share the gospel with someone, but what if the work itself matters? That it's real good. What if in addition to the way we faithfully bear witness, our daily work actually is reflecting the image of God in his world? Kingly ministry, priestly ministry, prophetic ministry. What if we thought not only of commissioning pastors and missionaries, but we thought, wait, God commissions artists in Genesis chapter two and teachers and mechanics and athletes and parents and salespeople. Wouldn't that fill our whole week with a sense of purpose? It's good the work that you're doing, paid or unpaid. It's good the task that God has set before you. So here's the closing remark I hope we take from here. Done as unto the Lord and as an act of service to our neighbor, every calling matters.